I am Captain Matthew Gillespie of the Philadelphia Police Department's Southwest Detective Division, and this is Aftermath Philadelphia. In this podcast, we host critical conversations with those involved in reducing the epidemic of gun violence in the city of Philadelphia. This podcast features candid episodes that highlight the different thoughts and perspectives while offering strategies to lower this violence. In this powerful episode, I sit down with Dr. Zafir Kassim, an emergency room and trauma critical care doctor from the world-class University of Pennsylvania Health System, specifically Penn Presby Hospital in West Philadelphia. We discuss his path that led him to Philly's emergency room, what it's like when one or multiple gunshot victims come into the ER, what it is like to tell a father or mother that their son or daughter has lost their life to gun violence, and his own thoughts about solving the gun violence issue. The thoughts and ideas on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the thoughts and ideas of any specific employer or organization. All right, we're back in the podcast studio, Aftermath Philadelphia, uh, season two. And today I'm very excited to have a a special, special guest, um, a partner from the medicine, the emergency medicine side, Dr. Dr. Zach Kassam, assistant professor of emergency medicine and critical care at the University of Pennsylvania. Doctor, thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. You know, I know we've connected or kind of hit it off on Twitter. It's the 21st century you know, we have the same kind of mindset with this gun violence that it's it's horrible, number one. Obviously, I think more can be done to stop it, you know, and we're here to just sit down and brainstorm. So thank you for taking the time. I know how busy you can be and coming over. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, of course. No, this is a really important topic and uh, very timely. As, unfortunately, as always, it's really in the headlines right now. So uh, good to be part of the conversation. You know, if you don't mind, just give us a little history of yourself. I mean, I see you have worked in the UK, in Baltimore, now in Philadelphia. Maybe give us a little history of that, and then I'm going to ask you, what are some similarities and differences? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I did my initial training in in the UK, um, and uh, as you well know, in regards to the gun crime stuff, there's hardly any in the UK, and all my time there was there for about 10 years, probably saw about... 10 gunshot victims through that time, uh, and I moved over to the States to really to get more training in uh, penetrating trauma or gunshot uh, okay. victims and how they're managed, um, because uh, certainly it was a part of our training in the UK that uh, was lacking. And so I came over to Baltimore. I trained for a year at uh, Baltimore Shock Trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, they see over 8,000 trauma victims a year. About 30% of that is penetrating trauma, so wow. gunshot victims. Um, and it was, uh, you know, a rough time uh, for its size, um, you know, in that year and the next couple of years, Baltimore was pretty much, you know, one of the, in the top five for um, number of uh, homicide yeah. victims or gunshot victims in the country. Um, and so it was uh, clearly uh, a place where, unfortunately, you know, day in, day out, we saw the aftermath of, mm-hmm. of gun violence uh, on a daily basis. Um, 
And uh, following my time there, I uh, moved uh, through uh, for kind of the Northeast. I was in Delaware for a few years. Okay. And moved up to um, Philadelphia, where cool. I've been for the last uh, five or six years now. So yeah. basically, you've been pretty busy for the yeah. last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, totally. I'm sure. Totally. Um, you know, I have to connect you at some point. You, you spoke of the UK. Our, my friend, Jerry Ratcliffe, uh, criminologist, Temple mm-hmm. professor, uh, very good tweeter. He he is uh, obviously from the UK and talks about you know the 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 issues that the UK has compared to the United States with gun violence. So um, if you don't follow him on Twitter, you, no, you definitely we'll should. Yeah. You definitely should. <laughs> you know, you know. You spoke of Baltimore, and and again, I don't have per se questions to ask you. I'm just kind of thinking of like it's a brainstorming session. Yeah. You know, it's like that public health approach. You know, there's no. It's no secret that the cities or areas that have the most or a lot of poverty have a lot of gun violence. Baltimore is that. You know, I had the opportunity to speak to a Baltimore, you know, executive level member from the police department. And that's like, how do you solve poverty, gun violence, education issues, public health stuff all at once? Um, yeah. And I guess I'm asked putting you on the spot. Uh-huh. You know, what do you think about that? Well, you know, it is intertwined. You know, we uh, looked at this a couple of years ago when we saw the um, increase in gun violence around the start of the COVID pandemic and mm-hmm. really the highest number. You know, we saw a, an astronomical rise in the first few months of uh, the pandemic, uh, actually against what we thought. We thought with, you know, like the stay-at-home orders and things like that, yeah. things would go down, but actually it went up. Um, and when we mapped it out, we used a geospatial analysis to map out where the shooting were happening, and majority were happening in uh, impoverished neighborhoods, unfortunately, in Philadelphia. And you can map out the same thing in big cities around sure. the country. Um, and so it's intertwined. You know, there's you know socioeconomic uh, problems are intertwined with gun violence, the availability of weapons, uh, the ghost guns that are available now, Absolutely. increasing gun sales in general. Um, and, you know, that's part of the problem that needs to be addressed in places that have kind of ta- tackled this where, you know, they've increased opportunities, especially mm. for younger people, um, but just in general, um, increasing places for uh, uh, leisure activities, increasing opportunities for jobs. Yeah. Those will see less crime. And so it's all intertwined. You know, in, and I'm getting the years confused a little bit, but COVID hit kind of what, March of 2020, yeah. I think it was. Mm-hmm. In the end of 2019, I remember presenting in Comstat, and we, we started to see, at least in Philadelphia, an increase in young people and particularly women being shot. And then when the COVID era hit, the, the young people, and I don't have my statistics in front of me, but certainly in the 18th district, my previous assignment skyrocketed, you know, and... You know, some of my counterparts that may not be popular to say did, didn't think, oh, COVID has nothing to do with this. I, I mean, I think it it really does. And time will tell through professional studies like Penn and even Johns Hopkins how it really affected young people's lives and why. Why did COVID do this? Um, and I think that's important to study. I'm just curious on your thoughts on that. Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, it, inevitably it was um, uh, interlinked because... You know, people had to stay at home. Unfortunately, you know, people who had jobs, mm-hmm. maybe their businesses went out of, um, uh, you know, they had to close down. 
Uh, people were spending more time at home. There was no structure to the day. Yeah. Uh, frustrations were building up. And so people took it out on other people. And unfortunately, sure. as you say, domestic violence was a big part of that. We saw same thing in the hospital. You know, a lot of, unfortunately, uh, incidents that were related to domestic violence. Um, but yeah, you, you know, you change the whole perspective of people who are already facing a tough time and now they're facing even more challenges, frustrations will build and, uh, that's linked to increased violence. What do you think? I'm like an East, I'm an East coast guy. I, I love the East coast. I, I've actually never been to the West coast. So I, I guess I'm biased to the East coast cause I've never been to the West coast, but East coast cities, you know, um, particularly Baltimore, even D.C. I was in D.C. two, three weeks ago. What are your thoughts on, like, what, what are some of the similarities between, say, Baltimore and Philadelphia in terms of gun violence or poverty or public health issues? Yeah, I think, you know, if you look at the big cities, so, for example, L.A. would be a good kind mm-hmm. of comparator city. And, uh, um, you know, they're facing kind of similar socioeconomic challenges in, in a lot of their neighborhoods. And, in fact, uh, our uh, colleagues over there at uh, L.A. County, which is a big county trauma center, kind of looked at the same uh, statistics, and they found it was mirrored what was happening on the East Coast. Okay. Um, and so that kind of just adds to it that this isn't, you know, something that's isolated to Philly. Uh, it's gotcha. something that's kind of a nationwide problem. Uh, it's uh, what a lot of us are calling this epidemic because it's like a disease. Sure. It's like continuing throughout the nation because yeah. of set reasons and, you know, um, socioeconomic disadvantage is one of those reasons. But there are others that, you know, we can look at things like mental health problems mm-hmm. uh, that are affecting it or uh, uh, adding to it or yeah. intertwined with it. So it's a complex beast that needs to be addressed. And I think you can mirror it on the West Coast and the South and in the North and big, big cities as well. Um, just areas that face uh, these challenges will have these problems. Yeah, I mean... I, I think all the time it's like I'm thinking of one elected official, a, a local person that um, it's a perfect example of, I think, what we should do. Right. Like, I don't think there's one answer. I don't think one person has the answer. And this this local elected official, I don't always agree with them, but they always answer my call and vice versa. You know, we're, we sit down and say, like, I don't agree with that, but let's try it. Or they'll say, I don't agree with that. Let's try it. I think we need more of that just you know, kind of country, countrywide, and I'm going off on a tangent, but but I will I want to throw that in there. Now, this is a question I actually had, you know, some listeners pose to me. Um, I haven't been in a trauma bay in a long time, just because of my position. Now we kind of get there afterwards, sure. you know. But to the listeners, you know, can you explain to them what the trauma bay is like when a gunshot victim comes in, or even unfortunately here in Philadelphia when maybe two or three come in? You know, yeah. what is that what is that chaos like? Well, it looks like chaos to me, yeah. but can you guys kind of break that down? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, a lot of people like this term, organized chaos. Actually, it's kind of a, a well kind of structured response to these um, uh, trauma victims. So what will typically happen is either... Uh, in Philadelphia, you know, p- patients uh, from with gunshots are mostly transported now by Philly police. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they'll come by Philly Fire Rescue, and we'll get some notification that someone's coming in. Okay. But oftentimes, when it's the police, we may get less than a minute of notification. And, and is that that's our police radio calling your hospital? Correct. Yeah. So the um, dispatcher will call our unit clerk and say, "Hey, there's." 
uh, Philly uh, police are bringing someone in who's been shot, say, in the chest. Gotcha. Uh, and that's the only information we'll often have, and their ETA is about two minutes. Um, and so we've uh, created, uh, you know, we saw um, challenges initially when, when um, uh, police were transporting patients of how do you quickly get these patients out of the back of the cruiser mm-hmm. and into the trauma bay? So actually, at our setup, we have a designated lane where uh, the police officer will drive up to. Yeah. Uh, our techs and security staff get dressed up in protective gear. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a set system where they can get the patient out really in less than 10 seconds. Wow. Um, and then everybody, regardless of their condition, has a hard stop at the security door. And that's to for our safety and for the patient's safety, just to make sure that there's no weapons that end up in the trauma bay. Because there are times where people who are victims of gunshots have weapons on them themselves. Exactly, yeah. And so really for everybody's safety, that needs to happen regardless of the patient's condition. But again, that's a really smooth process. Mm -hmm. takes about 10 seconds. And then they're wheeled into the trauma bay, which is about another 10 feet from the uh, uh, entrance. Uh, There, our team is already prepared. We'll be dressed up in our protective gear. It involves... Um, clinicians from the emergency medicine service, the trauma surgery service, our nurses, our techs. Um, everybody has a specific task to do. Um, our role from the emergency medicine side is to make sure that their airway and their breathing are uh, taken care of. Um, a lot of times I'll be uh, with one of my uh, resident doctors, we'll be at the head of the bed. Okay. We'll be the person that, if the person's awake, we'll be there to talk to him, kind of quickly reassure him. We have about a minute to get a quick rapport developed with that patient just to make sure that, um, you know, they're fears are addressed immediately and important questions are answered and if needed we'll uh, do interventions like put a breathing tube in or give mm-hmm. oxygen things like that um, my other colleagues on the team will be quickly looking for injuries so the person will be undressed completely uh, we'll look at them front and back make sure where the holes are mm-hmm. um, so that we know what we might be dealing with um, any life-saving interventions will take place. Sometimes that means putting a drainage tube into the chest. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it means giving blood. Um, and then depending on how sick they are, they might actually go uh, within the 10 minutes of arrival, they might need to go to the operating room. Wow. Uh, so that can be really fast, and our team has really developed the efficiency to be able to do that. Um, other times, luckily, if they're not as severely injured, they'll have time to go to our CAT scanner. They'll get some pictures mm-hmm. done, find out exactly what injuries there are. If they're relatively minor, we'll take care of those right there and then, and they might go home uh, from the trauma bay. But more often than not, they'll be admitted uh, to the hospital for a period of observation. So does, I guess what I, what I let me ask you this first. Does the, the policy that we have, the Philadelphia Police, where we take patients to the hospital, does, does that save lives, do you think? I think so. I think especially for the sickest of the sick, mm-hmm. really time does matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the faster you can get them to kind of advance medical intervention, yeah. the better. Um, and I think uh, one other thing that's really helpful in certain scenarios is now that most Philly police officers are carrying tourniquets on them. And a lot of times they'll apply those and yeah. limb injuries and things, and that saves lives too. So, but just the speed of them getting there mm-hmm. um, can often uh, be life saving. And the role, so like in that ER, you know, there's the doctors, there's the nurses, there's the the staff. Does everybody have the same role every shift? 
Yeah. It well, um, there. So there's a set role, and different people will rotate into that okay. role. So um, the nurses, for example, go a training period where they're eligible to be working in the trauma bay. So once they're cleared to do that, they'll be independently working there. Um, usually, one of the senior uh, mm-hmm. emergency medicine residents and the attending staff will go in from the emergency medicine side, and the trauma surgeon and their uh, kind of uh, group of resident doctors will be involved uh, on their side. So everybody knows their role. They've done it repeatedly. It's almost protocolized so that you know there's a little deviation from what mm-hmm. happens. Everybody gets the same thing done. Wow. Um, so that we don't miss anything. And, and just I'm trying to think of the logistics and the timing. So, you know, if if there's a shooting at 5 to a market, you know, uh, which I'm familiar with, mm-hmm. obviously, because of the 18th, you know, um, the police officer, you know, the shooting happens the, the within 45 seconds to a minute, you know, with the 911 call, yeah. the police officer's there, then the cop takes that person. So another minute and a half uh, to, to take the person to, to the hospital. So now we're at like two, say three minutes. Mm-hmm. Within another 10 minutes, that within 13 minutes of that person being shot, theoretically, they could be in the operating That's room right, table. Yeah. Wow. That's right, yeah. And wow. we've, uh, we've had that. Um, and then the other part of your question was, what happens when two or three people show up? Yeah. And so, you know, that can be a challenge. Um, but, uh, you know, there are several members of staff. Clearly, during the day, there's more people there than uh, at nighttime. But nevertheless, it's almost become the norm that at least one day a week we're having, um, you know, multiple people show up within a very short time period. And so we adapt and um, uh, distribute our team depending on a quick screen, mm-hmm. see who's the most severely injured. Those people get uh, slightly more resources sure. assigned than one who's who's slightly less injured. But nevertheless, we're able to kind of take care of those people um, simultaneously. Gotcha. Now, I know sometimes agencies and places get kind of funky with staffing levels. So if you can't answer it, I, I certainly understand. Sure. But do you alter your staffing levels based off of the days? Like, for example, like in Philadelphia, and this is something I kind of advocated for, like we should reach out to the hospitals and say, hey, listen, during these months, these are our most busiest days. So for in West Philadelphia, Sunday, actually during the summertime, mm-hmm. was the busiest night. All right. Let's give Penn a call mm-hmm. and say, hey, listen, son, just so you know, maybe you, you can get another doctor. Do you guys do that, or is it the same staffing levels every night? Yeah, so we keep it the, pretty much the same throughout the week. Okay. Um, and so uh, what we found is, you know, t- typically, for, again, for us, you know, Friday, Saturday nights, we'll, we'll, yeah. we can expect to be busy. Um, and our kind of almost like our mindset is kind of geared towards that. Uh, but we're staffed to be able to take um, these incidents really whenever they happen and and unfortunately they are happening you know in in the off times where it used to be the off times um so we haven't changed that uh there are backup options too so say we're faced with an incident Mm -hmm. like happened uh on south street the other week uh there's a opportunity to have people who are either on call or backing up to come into the hospital um, sometimes resources can be brought in from one mm-hmm. of the other area Penn hospitals to supplement. So there are opportunities to supplement if needed. Gotcha. Um, but a lot of times we find that the staffing that we have already is adequate for what we face. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and I have to say, I mean, from being at your hospital, Penn Presby and Hop, um, for whether it was a police officer shot, whether it was a young child shot, uh, an adult 
the response is always the same. I mean, you guys are literally amazing, honestly. Appreciate that. Um, no, we really do. It <laughs> is, it is, it is, if not certainly national, um, one of the best and certainly probably one in the world, I would think. You yeah, know? no, really appreciate that. And uh, certainly the statistics bear out, you know, our, our uh, save rates for penetrating trauma is uh, at or above the national average. So mm-hmm. we're uh, thankfully doing a a good job for the community, um, yeah. unfortunately, with all the, the stuff that's going on. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, you get a lot of practice at it, unfortunately, yeah. and hopefully we can figure out a way where you don't get as much practice. I'm saying that in a, in a professional sense, really, you know. Um, just for those that, that do listen, you know, and, and even the police officers that, that listen, and, and my own, in a general sense, what does a bullet do to the body? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and, you know, there's uh, probably people don't or get a skewed idea of what happens with uh, ballistic injuries uh, from what they see uh, in movies and things like that. Um, so uh, a lot of the victims that we'll see will be shot by handguns. Um, and handguns are really low velocity um, uh, projectiles. Um, as opposed to, say, what you're seeing in some of these mass shootings where they're using uh, AR-15s mm-hmm. that have exponentially higher um, uh, amount of uh, velocity and hence energy that's given out. Yeah. So, But what happens once that bullet enters is that um, it uh, um, enters through the skin, which is relatively non-expansile. It goes through. It doesn't cause a lot of damage there. But um, the muscles and then the organs in between uh, there's a, uh, uh, a physical principle called cavitation that happens. And so okay. the force of the bullet going through sets up this almost like a shock wave that goes around it. And that expands well beyond the diameter of the size of the bullet okay. um, and then causes a significant amount of injury to the tissues inside, especially when you look at some of the organs like the liver, um, those can really mm-hmm. shatter because of that reverberation force or that shock wave that develops inside. Um, and then depending on how many times you're shot or where you're shot, you know, that can cause devastating injuries to either blood vessels mm-hmm. or the, the injuries or the organs themselves, which are, um, which have a big blood supply. And so you can rapidly bleed out from uh, any of these injuries. Uh, the other thing that can happen is that um, mostly these bullets will travel in straight lines, but they might enter, say, through your belly and end up in your chest. And so they can certainly travel to different parts of the body, which is part of our reason to really quickly um, find out exactly where mm-hmm. the holes are and also use things like x-rays and things to determine exactly where the bullet is so that we can kind of predict what kind of injuries might have happened. Yeah, we see that a lot um, in the patrol and even the detective side where the officers believe, you know, because what what we see at night when we're there just scooping somebody, that somebody may be shot multiple times when really it's an entrance and exit wound, Yeah, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And just with the amount of firepower that's being fired on the streets these days... Unfortunately, we see more people um, with more wounds, which which is troubling. I I had another question for you too, because obviously I'm in the detective bureau now. Um, I remember being in Hup's ER or Temple's ER, mm-hmm. and the person is a victim of a gunshot. The police scooped them. The hospital's working on them in the ER, and now the detectives are there, getting in your way. Yeah, just saying it, and we're trying mm-hmm. to ask them questions, right? Right. Studies have shown that that's probably now not the best time to 
to interview somebody, you know, I, and I just would be interested in your thoughts on that, yeah. you know? I'll be clear. You know, I've, I've had a couple of times where we've just gotten a victim and a police officer with all, you know, the right intentions is coming in. It's just and, in the way. And coming in, and I'll kick them out. I'll say, look, you know, As this you is not the priority right now. Yep. You know, this guy's life is on the line, and that's my priority, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so I will kick them out and uh, say you got to come back. Politely. <laughs> <laughs> politely and sternly. <laughs> there you go. Even better. Even better. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I agree. It's uh, it's not a, uh, a time to... Uh, uh, intervene from uh, kind of the police perspective per se. We and we're mindful of that. We we understand um, you know you, uh, the police's role in trying to um, solve the crime and get as much information as possible. But at the same time, you know we need to make sure that this person lives through this event. Um, and also, I, I think um, you know just given the general atmosphere currently and how a lot of our uh, you know the demographic of a lot of our victims. There's fear. Um, there's fear that they've been shot just now. There's also fear that even though the police may be there clearly to try and solve the crime, that they, this person might get into trouble for something or something like that. So there's fear in general. And so, you know, their um, uh, recollection of the event or their, their ability to, to participate in an interview is probably not ideal. And then finally, from a physiologic point of view, you know, if they're um, bleeding to death, you know, their ability to think straight Mm -hmm. isn't great as well. Mm -hmm. And so probably the information that they could provide is not uh, very useful at all. So for a number of reasons, it's not a great time to to start talking or questioning that person. Yeah, you know, we talk about, we have a new non-fatal shooting unit here in Philadelphia, uh, Captain John Walker. He was actually my lieutenant when I was a sergeant here. He's in charge of it. And, um, he does a very good job of understanding that, I think, you know, that trying to get somebody to tell you exactly what happened um, when they're shot several times, maybe bleeding out, yeah. maybe not, um, maybe had a weapon on them as well, uh, are scared, you know, traumatized, yeah. is not the best time to, to get somebody. So I do know the city has, you know, we're, we're working with like violence interrupters and, and mental health advocates to follow up the next day or the day after, right, with uh, maybe the parents or the family there as well yeah. to find out, you know, really what happened. Not to get you in trouble, mm-hmm. but to help prevent a retaliatory shooting. Right. And right. it's just my personal preference. Uh, I think that's probably the best way to go now in what we understand. Yeah. You know? Um, and two, we're just, we're, we're in your way a little bit. And I have seen it. You know, as a patrol supervisor, I'm like, yo, you, you can't stand over the guy while the right. doctor is, like, trying to help this person breathe. You yeah. got to move, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so please feel free to continue to politely and sternly <laughs> ask them to leave. Yeah, and uh, another, you know, if, if for nothing else, um, for the safety of the officer, too, you can imagine there's a lot of sharp objects that mm-hmm. might be flying around uh, as we're doing life-saving procedures, and we uh, take great care not to hurt ourselves, and we also don't want mm-hmm. anybody else to get hurt inadvertently. Um, this is a tough question. I think it's an important one, though. Mm-hmm. You know, um, somebody does not make it. Yeah. You know, what is that conversation like and how does the hospital prepare you, the medical staff and the family to hear that news? Yeah, that's rough. Yeah. And it happens, um, unfortunately. Uh, first and foremost, um, we've really kind of uh, f- 
from the medical side have uh, have looked at um, honoring the the person's life. Mm-hmm. So if they die in the trauma bay, we we all stop. Uh, we take thirty seconds. Everybody's silent. Um, you know, you can pray or whatever is is right for you, but just be silent, just to honor that person's life. Um, because unfortunately, you know, they're they've passed away. Often they're young, otherwise healthy person. Yep. Um, and then, you know, the, the question then is, you know, how do we find out who they're related to? Oftentimes we might not have that information immediately. We have a great team who kind of works often in collaboration with the police sure. to try and identify the next of kin. Um, we have a specific room where, where they'll be sat and that's away from everything else mm-hmm. and all the other hustle bustle that might be going on. And then one of us, usually one of the senior physicians will go in, whether that's the trauma surgeon or us as the emergency medicine team, uh, to talk to them. Um, and we found over time that the, you know, they, they may have some inkling about what happened, mm-hmm. usually by that point. Yeah. And they just want to know whether their son or daughter is alive or dead. And so, personally, I'll lead with that. And so, you know, my name's Dr. Kassim. I took care of your son. I'm very sorry to say I have some bad news for you. Your son has died. Yeah. Um, and I'll stop there. Um, and the reaction can be varied. Sometimes you get uh, people who become very emotional, understandably, um, and uh, start crying out or shouting out or punching things or things like that. And you have to give them space to be sure. able to do that. Um, and sometimes there'll be silence, which is sometimes as loud as those cries yeah. and wails that are there. So, And some people will want to know what happened. Some people won't. Some people just want to go see their relative. Um, you know, we facilitate them being able to do so and have time with the, uh, uh, with the person before uh, all the medical legal stuff has to happen. Um, but it's tough. It's, uh, you know, regardless of how long you've been doing it, um, we're doing it so often now, it often seems routine, but it's, you know, you walk away at the end of the day, it's still, you know, mm-hmm. a young person who's died and you've had to tell the family member that, uh, uh, it's rough. Um, and especially so I find, you know, you hear, you hear stories of these, you know, the people who were just in the wrong place at the wrong yeah. time, you know, if yeah. I remember... Uh, someone who was shot and fortunately died, their family member told me that, you know, them and their friend had just come back from uh, a business meeting. They were about to set up a new business. They were, you know, really excited about it and everything was going great for them. And now, you know, they're dead. And so, you know, it, that's, that's rough. Um, that's, uh, yeah, I'm getting, a, to be honest, I'm getting a little uh, emotional my, myself. Um, I'm thinking of the story I told you before we started to record, yeah. you know. Um, you know, we had the mass shooting on South Street where it was a, a young lady and a Gerard College teacher or, or administrator. And I apologize for not knowing exactly his position. Just down there having a good time. Yeah. You know, just down there having a good time. Um, I would always tell, the, especially the young officers, downstairs in the 18th somebody loves this person yeah you know yeah um the the officer may have had interactions with the person and the officer may only know the person because they were arrested or because they lived in a certain area and and i used to tell them none of that shit matters somebody loved them yeah you know somebody did yeah and they should be treated with with respect um especially 
uh, if they lose their life. And it is, uh, it's upsetting. I lived here my entire life. It's upsetting what's going on, you know? Um, you know, my follow-up question to you is, I don't think we as police have totally figured it out as a profession, Mm -hmm. you know, how you deal with this stuff. How, how do you guys deal with it? Yeah, I'd say, you know, it's it's not really something you learn in medical school or nursing mm-hmm. school. It's um, and a lot of it is kind of evolved probably over time. You're uh, you, you have to strike a balance, you know, at the same time, once you're uh, done managing this case, there's X number of other people that you have to go and see and you have to, you know, you, they're there to see you and, um, you know, for your skills and expertise and you have to be able to provide them. Uh, the care that they need and you know they you can't tell them you know what just happened nor you know is it uh, right to do so but you have to be there 100 percent for them so certainly you know being able to transition um, and provide or go about the rest of your day is really important Uh, but um, whereas before I would say um, you know as a profession we probably bottle things up a lot I think we've moved more to being able to talk about these things more um, especially, I think, in light of some of the incidents um, where we've had uh, kids show up at, at Presby mm-hmm. um, who've been shot for no reason other than they were there with their dad or their mom who yeah. got shot as well. Um, you know, those those sessions have really hit hard. Um, uh, and we've had specific... Um, uh, kind of group talk sessions where uh, we've had one of our um, uh, psychologists come on as well just to help us kind of talk through our emotions and things like that. Um, and I think that's been really helpful in, in the aftermath. Um, we've moved more to having uh, sort of quick debriefs mm-hmm. afterwards mm-hmm. just to, you know, process what's happened um, and uh, get through some of the frustrations that people are feeling. Um And I think, you know, working in West Philly um, is unique because a lot of our staff are either maybe even related or are friends with some of the victims that come in. Mm -hmm. And I remember working clearly on on a young man who, um, uh, this was a few years ago, who got shot, uh, severely so. We had to um, essentially do open heart surgery in the trauma bay. Okay. Um, and, uh, later on my colleague who's helping me with the, um, airway part of it told me that actually that's their relative. And so, um, and so, you know, when I went to go talk to the family, they were there too. And I was like, you know, what are you doing here? And it's like, you know, that was my relative and, you know, that really makes it all really real for you. And yeah. so, you know, you, uh, if you're not processing that, you can't then be there for the next victim who comes in and they're relying on you to be at the top of your game every day. I, I think, you know, I found myself, you know, with a lot of the violence, um, you know, maybe not, I don't want to say acknowledging it, but like, Understanding how it was affecting me yeah. until like weeks later, months later, days later, and I was trying to be cognizant of the officers because they're the ones that see it. You know, yeah. from 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 yeah. my profession first. Uh, I'm thinking of one particular case that was very upsetting, and it happened at a block party during the middle of the day, and. 
the officer that responded was a, was one of our very good school beat officers, and the person that was unfortunately lost their life was a, a, a young person that he knew from the school. Oh wow! You know, yeah. and it's like, you know, I think the the are you okay? You know, check in afterwards. We, I guess what I'm saying is like we can't just go on to the next call. Yeah. You know, and I think as a profession in law enforcement, we have to figure out a better way there's definitely good stuff happening yeah um but a better way nationally to kind of address what officers are, are seeing i read an article this morning in, in minneapolis they're doing something where officers can only work a certain amount mm-hmm. hours a week oh wow yeah. you know it's like they're 40 hours but yeah. then they can only do x amount of hours after that okay um when they go to critical incidents they have to do things like you just talked about a mm-hmm. debrief you know, just to assess where they are. Right. Um, that's good. And I think that stuff is really, really important. Um, you know, this is this is the tough question I ask a lot of the guests. You know, how do we stop this? Yeah, it's you know? a, you know, it's a good question. And um, you know, it's part of you talked about how do you cope with this. You know, you can uh, either kind of sit there and say, oh, you know, this is awful and stuff like that, or you can kind of start doing something about it. And so, you know, a a couple of us in the emergency department and in the trauma service, we've been uh, over the last two years trying to figure out what we can do. And I think this is part of how you and I um, got talking to each other. Um, And so we, you know, as you kind of dig into this problem, you realize, you know, how multifaceted it is and some of the causes and effects of it. And I think, you know, uh, going back to comparing this to countries like the UK and stuff like that, um, you know, it took me living here to understand um, how much guns can be part of the just the general culture. And for some people, you know, some families, it's like, you know, it's uh, almost, you know, the, the, the gun is passed through generations is like an heirloom and things like that. And so it's important for people. And so you can't just say, OK, I'm going to take away all this um, but, um, and I'll go into the politics here, you know, the, the political um, kind of spiel that comes out is that, oh, they're after your guns. Um, and actually, you know, when you break things down and say, hey, you know, we're not after you, we're not going to take away all your guns, mm-hmm. but, you know, maybe it's a good idea that, you know, the, the person who's not allowed to legally drink shouldn't be allowed to legally buy a gun. And, you know, when you talk to gun owners about that, yeah, you know, that sounds like a good idea. Because maybe, you know, you know, you should have more checks on, mm-hmm. you know, these gun shows. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that you can't just walk in and walk out with a automatic weapon. And, you know, hey, yeah, that's a good idea. And, you know, oh, wow, you can still keep your gun, but, you know, there's rules there. Yes. Um, and one of the most profound things, actually, a few, a couple months ago, we, uh, my friend and I went to uh, Harrisburg to uh, lobby um, and pr- uh, kind of it was a, a day of protest about uh, gun violence. We went with a group called uh, Ceasefire PA. Okay. Um, and we met with a number of lawmakers. We met with a number of staffers. And I remember talking to a, um, a Republican staffer about um uh, these uh, red flag laws, these extreme risk protection orders, um, and how, for example, if someone's depressed, mm-hmm. um, you know, or, or wants to commit suicide, they're much more likely to be successful if they have access to a weapon. And uh, you know, these red flag laws uh, would allow, say, some, a judge to say, okay, um, you know, 
Captain, you need to go and take this guy's gun away from him sure. um, for a period of time until they get help. And and once they're fine, you, they can have their gun back. Gotcha. Um, and so that kind of uh, law, uh, you know, right now in, in Pennsylvania, the only way to do that is for me to commit that person. And then, you know, there's a whole kind of legal and... It's a very bureaucratic process. Yeah. It's tough. But they, this person was talking about how a, a relative of theirs ended up committing suicide, and they knew that this person was at risk, and mm. they wanted to take the gun away from them, but there was no legal recourse to be able to do that. And so, you know, just having this kind of red flag laws made sense to that person who has a family that where everybody legally owns a weapon. Sure. And so, you know, when you break it down and don't put it under this umbrella of fear-mongering, um, for, you know, they're trying to take away your guns, then some of these laws uh, make sense. And, you know, it was really refreshing to hear over the weekend that, you know, there seems to be a little bit of a push to kind of bipartisan uh, change in some of this. So that's part of it. But the other part of it is like we were talking about, you know, um, how do you, uh, you know, when you look at where these incidents happen, areas of poor socioeconomic mm-hmm. disadvantage, you know, how do you fix that? You know, how can we get these people to have jobs or sustainable jobs? How do we make sure they get the education they need? How do we invest in their neighborhoods so that, you know, there's better lighting so that, you know, they can go out safely and play in the street? Mm -hmm. You know, when I was a kid, you know, playing in the street until it was sunset was was the thing what you do do. yeah Yeah, exactly and it's like you know now even in the daytime parents are worried that their kids could get shot um so better lighting um you know making a basketball court on one of these vacant lots or something like that you know can help keep the kids engaged um out of trouble and um uh, and just help the community. There was uh, my colleague, Gina South, she, she did a lot of work on just improving green spaces in areas mm-hmm. and showed that, you know, just having more green spaces reduces the amount of violence that happens just yeah. because people have things to do. Um, and then finally, I think, and this is the part that I really struggle with, I think, you know, when you talk to a lot of the officers in the Bay um, and a lot of the people who are victims, a lot of these incidents seem to stem from beefs that come up in social media. You know, someone feels dissed on social media mm-hmm. and they have to solve it with, uh, you know, shooting them. That, that's a whole, man, that is, so it's that, and I, did, I didn't mean to cut you off, but they like flicked the trigger in me. Yeah. Not, it, it's that, and it's so instantaneous. Yeah, yeah. That is almost like a logistical aspect to yeah, it from exactly. the police. Like, so yeah. if you and I are beefing, you can go on Instagram live. Yeah. I will see it live right. and get my gun yeah. and, and go to, to where you are before it even manifests itself. Yeah, exactly. And so sometimes, you know, we're, we're like chasing our tail a little bit, you know, but that is like a nationwide issue yeah. with social media. But yeah. you just... Um, you know, you hit on all the good points. I mean, there. You know, I, I do have to add one other. You know, uh, and again, these are my my personal opinions. You know, the individual, the, the accountability aspect, and I don't believe that everybody should go to jail, and I don't believe that everybody should go to jail for you know decades. Mm-hmm. You know, um, this is just my opinion. You know, the I'm thinking of real life cases that I've been involved in out here since West Philly. You know, uh, I made a, a gun arrest maybe last year. Kid was never arrested before. Um, he had a gun on him. He was so nervous when we walked up to him. Yeah. 
And he legitimately was being bullied and had a gun on him because he was being bullied and had no other option. Right. right? Wow. I don't think, and I even said to the district attorney, I don't think this person should be, you know, in jail at all, yeah. you know? Then there's instances of individuals, you know, three gun arrests in nine months, five gun arrests in a year and a half. I think that's a different category. Mm -hmm. And I still don't think that people, you know, the one five arrests in a year and a half should go to jail for years, but should be off the street for, you know, maybe 23 months or 24 months. I do think that is a part of it. But I totally agree with you. Um, The investment aspect, the educational aspect, the the minimum wage aspect of it. Um, And I guess that's that would be the public health. Approach. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that's like, you know, everything else is just putting a Band-Aid on it. But you need to look at ways that this can be a sustained yeah. effort to uh, to reduce the, I, uh, the I, violence. I had a, uh, when I was a lieutenant, long story short, I was, uh, spent some time, I was essentially in charge of the jail that the police department had. It was underneath police headquarters. Mm-hmm. I remember speaking with a 16-year-old who committed a murder. And... I used to think like, oh, you know, they, the kid knows what he's doing, you know. And I, I do believe that, that that young kid knew that he pulled the trigger, knew that he took somebody's life. But from the conversation, and the particulars aren't important, he didn't grasp the severity of it. Right. He didn't understand that the rest of his life essentially is over. Yeah. You know, he yeah. understood that he pulled the gun out and he pulled the trigger, but yeah. he just didn't grasp. So I do think that, like, prevention and education is part of yeah. it as well, you know? Yeah, I like that you bring that up because I think the other aspect that people um, don't see is the, uh, you know, for the survivors, um, even their life has changed forever. And there was a spate of time where um, people were being deliberately shot either in the stomach or in the back because it would leave them with a colostomy or it would leave them with a a paralysis. Mm. Um, And so there was a whole string of, you know, where several months we were seeing this. Um, And that's, you know, that is the rest of their life affected. Um, You know, maybe they have ongoing complications from Mm -hmm. their initial surgery, infections. Um, If they're paralyzed, you know, they... They need to put a, a tube into their bladder to pee every day. Um, they can't get around. They, you know, they're struggling to get the rehabilitation they need. Maybe they don't have mobility access to their house. And you know, if they were struggling to get a job to begin with, now it's even, you yeah. know, without the right help, you know, they're they're uh, even worse. They get depressed. They get other problems. They yeah. come back into the hospital for complications. And so, you know, this becomes a lifelong problem, not just for them, but for the people who take care of them, their family. Um, And so those kind of things never really make the press. Um, You don't see it really in uh, in the media or the movies or whatever, but this is the reality we face. I'm glad you brought that up, you know, as we close it out. I, I, you know, and I'm looking forward to having a news reporter on here at some point, but you do see the... You know, the, the 6 o'clock news, yeah. the shooting here, mm-hmm. very rarely do you see the year-later follow-up that, yeah. that the person physically is struggling mm-hmm. but also mentally is struggling. Yeah. You know, um, it's tough. It's tough on them, their families. 
you know, I'm just thinking out loud here. You know, I wonder what the, the, the suicide rate is with some individuals. Yeah, I don't think uh, we know for sure, but no doubt, uh, you know, these these victims get depressed um, and, you know, they might decide to take their life, unfortunately. And it's just the sad consequence of, of uh, everything that started just because of the gun violence. Well, listen, Dr. Zach Kasim, um, I really do appreciate it. Like when you say on the front lines, you're literally on the front lines. Yes, for you those, are. <laughs> I, I tell everyone I sit in an office and answer emails for a living. Um, for those of you that don't know, you know the University of Pennsylvania, um, specifically Penn Presby Hospital, is phenomenal work. I mean, you've literally brought people back from the dead. It, it's on a Saturday night in West Philadelphia, uh, lives can be. You know, we talk about the people that have lost their lives and their families, but there's also many, many people who you have saved who has, you know, changed families, I don't say for the better, but like, you know, when, when you've almost lost your child and the doctors and nurses have brought that person back to life, I mean, that is a, that's something that can't be put into words. Yeah. You know? I mean, uh, you know, I'm blessed to work with great team uh, who really put in their 110% every mm-hmm. time they come into work. And so, you know, I'll take this moment to thank them as well, because, uh, you know, we can't do it by ourselves. Yeah. It's all a team effort. Yeah, I have the, uh, the Penn Star helicopter flies over my house. Mm-hmm. I live in the northwest section of Philadelphia. So, you know, I leave going past, you know, your hospital. And then at home, if I'm sitting outside, I see the Penn Star helicopter. So it's like Penn is always kind of like on my radar. Okay. You know, but uh, listen, thank you for coming in. Yeah, I know how course. busy Thanks you are. Thanks for having me. Appreciate this is it. such an important topic. And uh, I do appreciate the work you're doing to, to help the city be safe. Yeah, likewise. And I appreciate being part of this. Thank you.